This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's nothing like going through a degree in law school and, you know, landing a perfect job at a perfect firm and then arriving and thinking, what am I doing? I'm not going to be here for the next 40 years. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello, and welcome to our final episode of Don't Stop Us Now for 2020. Gosh, 2020's flown by, hasn't it? Yes, and in its own rather unique and very crazy way, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All the more reason we're happy to say we're going to finish this year on a high note with today's episode, featuring an incredible woman and leader, Michelle Guthrie. Best known in Australia for her role as Managing Director of the ABC, or Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Michelle has spent much of her career in Asia, where she was CEO of Star TV with more than 4,000 staff, and she also spent five years at Google Asia Pacific as Managing Director there. And for listeners overseas, the ABC is the equivalent to Britain's BBC, so it's a pretty big deal. It's also a pretty big deal when one is fired from the same organisation halfway through one's contract, which is exactly what happened to Michelle amidst a lot of controversy. That's for sure. And we'll hear more about that in our conversation. And we think you'll be fascinated to hear Michelle's take and attitude on the whole episode. Definitely. Now, these days, Michelle is based in Sydney and sits on a number of company boards and advises tech companies on scaling globally. In this episode, you'll learn how Michelle transitioned her career from lawyer to global media and technology executive, how joining Google after running Star TV was frankly a bit of a shock and how she bounced back from her very public end at the ABC. And you'll hear her views on women being held to different standards in business. We really love this conversation with Michelle and think you will too. So without further ado, enjoy. Michelle Guthrie, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real honour. Well, no, it's our honour, actually. We are 
so excited to have you on the show because, you know, we go back a little way, don't we? We go back to days when we, I think the first time we met was uh, when we both were on the boards, you in Hong Kong, me in Australia for Plan International. Exactly. So that was a long time ago. How long ago? It was definitely pre-Google. 2007 I joined, so it must have been sort of 2007, 2008, something like that. That's a long time. It is. It is. And so I know a little bit about your background and many Australian listeners may know a little bit about you, but we're really excited to spend some time really understanding who Michelle Guthrie is. But before we do, as I think you know, one question that we ask our guests when we start is if you were at a dinner party and somebody said to you, well, Michelle, what do you do? What would you say to them? Well, right now, what I focus on is trying to supercharge Australian technology companies and take them global. Well, yeah, I know that you've got huge amounts of experience there and you'd be incredibly valuable. And we'll dive a little bit deeper into that a little bit later. But before we do, let's go right back to your childhood. And you grew up in Sydney. How would you describe your childhood? It was very family-oriented. So I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest. And my mother's Chinese, so we have a very strong multi-generational household where my Chinese grandparents lived in the apartment next door. We lived in one of the apartments and, you know, my aunts and uncles lived in another apartment. And so we were always really surrounded by family, by food, um, by just lots of people. It sounds like it was very loud. Yes, particularly because my mother also and aunts played mahjong. Ah. So, so the people in the apartments downstairs used to complain that they thought we were throwing rocks around and they were mahjong tiles. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. And what was the young Michelle like? Oh, very serious, very studious. And how did you imagine your life would be when you were young? I always thought that I would work and work very hard. I never thought that I would kind of, you know, coast along. I mean, that that isn't my nature at all. But at the same time, I thought I was, you know, going to be in the profession. So with a Chinese mother, you have a choice of doctor or lawyer, right? That's it. So I alternated between doctor or lawyer. Every now and again, I wanted to be a journalist and and my mother would remind me that I couldn't just sort of show up as Yarn Event on 60 Minutes, who was my hero. So I became a, a lawyer. I thought I was going to be a partner of a law firm and be a professional, but not do the things that I ended up doing. That's classic. So how was that experience for you? Yeah, look, I loved studying law. I really did. I, you know, realised that particularly with with some subjects like contracts, I was very good at it and, and I really liked it. I loved the intellectual stimulation of it. I loved reading cases. I loved memorising facts. But I must admit, when I arrived as a junior lawyer, I thought, hmm, this is quite tough having to account for every minute of your time and charging clients and just working you know I I work hard but the hours were crazy and I really did sort of look at um, working for a law firm for the next 40 years and frankly at the 
organisation and thought, I don't want to do this for the next 40 years. And I did really have this realisation that, wow, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> How do I pivot, I guess, using my legal skills and not work at a, at a large law firm? And my initial idea was to get some international experience. So I put my hand up for an international office and they said, well, where would you like to go? And I said, wherever's next. And they said, well, the next opportunity is in Singapore. And I said, well, that will do. That's great. So after I'd been a lawyer for a few years, that's that's where I moved. Yeah. And then you did eventually leave the law. How hard of a conversation was that with your mother? You know, I was still a lawyer. I mean, even though I wasn't working for a law firm and actually I was on secondment for a long time. So I never actually sort of formally resigned. I think my mother thought at some point I would come back and go back to the law firm and be a partner. And But, you know, when I started working in-house, that became, you know, the path. There was no doubt to me that, you know, starting to work at B-Sky B in London where they were really at the forefront of launching pay TV and then launching digital pay TV. It was an incredible ride. And I was there in the very, really in the very beginning in, in the mid nineties where Biscay B wasn't making very much money. I who actually wasn't making any money at all. And I was also, because I was a news News Corp employee, I was being asked to go and check out Ukrainian state television or sent to Australia to negotiate with Telstra to set up Foxtel back in 95. So, you know, it was it was fantastic. You know, there wasn't a day where I felt that I was doing the, the same thing, you know, even, even though I was working for the same company for, you know, I guess I was in London for about five, five and a half years. Yeah. And then, if I'm not mistaken, you stayed with News Corporation, but went on and sort of left the lawyer hat behind to become CEO of Star TV or Star Television based in Hong Kong. How intimidating was that move to sort of become, you know, the top dog of that business? Yeah, look, it was was one of those things where you're sort of constantly doing these little sideway pivots. So it's scary, but not too scary. So, you know, when I started, I was very much the corporate lawyer at, at Biscay B. And then I would essentially add, I added over time business development. So I was a lawyer plus actually doing the deals. And then when I moved to Hong Kong for Star, that was the first time I stopped being a lawyer. And I must admit that was incredibly freeing because every time I got a legal document, I would then just hand it to the legal team and I could, you know, focus on not having to draft the agreements and being able to move on to really sort of understanding the business side. And then over time, I was given the opportunity to run the rest of Asia business. And I said that I really loved doing business development. And I, you know, in the typical News Corp way, I was told, well, you can do both. So I did business development as well as run the rest of Asia business. And little did I realise that at that time, on reflection, I am convinced that I was being tested to see whether I could run a business, whether I could run a P&L, because I was definitely good at strategy. I was good at, you know, working out how to partner with people, particularly sort of throughout Asia. But running a P&L is, you know, driving revenue as well as cost containment is, is a different skill. I enjoyed doing it. I didn't enjoy doing it as much as business development. But when I was then given the opportunity to run Star TV, I must admit at the time I was I was really taken 
taken aback when I was approached internally. But, you know, on reflection, I, I thought, yeah, I mean, I can do this. I know strategy. I know how to run a PL. But going from that to basically, you know, managing 4,000 people and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, that was a big step up. Frankly, I'm eternally grateful to News Corp for giving me that opportunity. I mean, I really did think that only at News Corp would they put a, a lawyer who hadn't, you know, been a CEO before into running a, such a, a large business. Incredible. How would you summarise sort of the learnings from that amazing experience and time? I think it really was about prioritising, that when you're confronted with so much opportunity, it's very easy to just say kind of yes to things and particularly particularly on the business development side, there were lots of opportunities across the organisation. But as you looked at it, you thought, well, if I do that, I can't do this. Is that the best use of our resources? Is that the best use of our time? And so one of the things I really learned at that period of time is to really prioritise, you know, figure out what are the, you know, most compelling opportunities and what are going to be the ones that are going to be more enduring over time. You know, one of the things you do when you're looking after such so many markets, and and I picked that up very much at Google as well when I was running Asia Partnerships, was pattern recognition. I mean, be able to see something and say, I've seen this movie before. (laughs) This looks very similar to, you know, a few years ago in this market or that market, or there's an ability to leapfrog. So look, it's all about timing, opportunity, price, use of resources, and partnership. I don't think we can leave talking about News Corporation without asking, and feel free not to answer if you're not comfortable, without asking, you know, what is the famous and infamous Rupert Murdoch like to work with? Well, I have to say I found him an incredible entrepreneur. I learned so much from him. I reported him for for close to five years. And I have to say that the backing he gave me for investments across Asia and the ambition he really set for me was was quite something. It is fantastic when you work for people who have that audacious vision because it really stretches you, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I for me, it is about having somebody who really not just kind of pushes you, but is willing to support you for things that in the immediate term may, may not make sense. So you know, having a long-term perspective around Asia is the, exactly the right thing to do. And relationships matter in Asia and longevity matters and having a long-term view matters. So it's about building, building a business for the future. How refreshing. Yeah, it's quite something. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, it was it was a very unique time and I still feel incredibly grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, well, how wonderful. And, you know, you spent quite a long time in Asia, didn't you? How long were you there in the end? So if I include my Google time, I arrived in Hong Kong in 2000 and then I really left Google in Singapore in 2015. So, yeah, it was a solid... 15, 16 years. Yeah. And do you think having Asian heritage helped you or hindered you when you were working there? 
Ah, that's a great question. I have to say the first time I moved to Hong Kong in 2000, I felt like I was at home. It was hard to describe because my family isn't from Hong Kong. I didn't have family there, but it felt familiar and it made sense to me. I spoke Cantonese and I spoke our dialect, Toy San, but it just felt very homely. So in 2011, you joined Google in Singapore in an Asia-Pacific role after having done, I think, three years in private equity before that. How much of a culture shock was it to move to Google? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I must admit, the first few months, I don't think I really knew what people were talking about. Everyone spoke in acronyms. You had a completely open calendar. So people would set up meetings. I think, who the hell are you, right? Um, And what are you you doing in my calendar? (laughs) Um, There was unbelievable transparency. I couldn't get over it and I couldn't believe that none of that had leaked before. It was such a culture shock. I couldn't figure out how the organisation worked. No one seemed to be in charge. Everything was ridiculously matrixed. So trying to figure out who was influential was quite difficult, who you needed to talk to to get things done. I've been coming from News Corp. I knew exactly who I needed to talk to to get things done. Whereas Google, it was very much a black box. But at the same time, what I couldn't also get over was how big the opportunity was for Google. When I arrived, I think we had 100 employees in the Singapore office. Gosh, I remember that time. Yeah, in that one, it was kind of a couple of floors of that massive yeah. tower. And that's not that long ago. And by the time I left, I think there were 15, 1600 people in five years. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? What did you learn about how you lead in those environments? Hmm. Well, look, I do think that it was definitely not a top-down leadership style that was going to succeed at Google. There was no doubt about it. The great thing about Google is the quality of the, the teams were unbelievably good. So mostly it was trying to help them do what needed to get done. So you know, I spent a lot of time saying, how can I be helpful? Do you need me to go to a particular meeting? Do you need me to try to get something done with product or you know get something cleared in Mountain View? And I I think that moving to that leadership style, which is all about assisting the team and supercharging the team rather than directing the team, was really driven by my time at Google. Very interesting. And of course, having said that, five years at Google, television lured you back. And in this instance, the top job at ABC, which for overseas listeners is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is the sort of the Australian equivalent of the BBC in the UK. What was it that appealed to you about that opportunity? So many things. I mean, I was frankly looking for board roles back in Australia as what I thought was a pathway home. So when I got a call from a recruiter about the ABC job, I must admit I did think that was a very unlikely role to be presented with. But the more time I spent looking into it, the more I realised I must do it. I thought that my Google experience would make me a much better media CEO because I knew what technology companies like Google were good at and what what they weren't good at. And they clearly weren't good at content. (laughs) That's not their job. And so I thought that having my time over and having an opportunity to really, you know, run a media organisation again 
as well as, frankly, the most compelling thing was when I did my research, it became very apparent that the ABC had real risks of being irrelevant to my daughters and my daughter's daughters. It really needed to fundamentally transform and be much more focused on delivering to Australians wherever they were, whether they were online, whether they were on Facebook, whether they were watching TV or whether they're on their mobiles. And that required a fundamental change in the approach of the organisation. And so over time, it became really apparent that, that I must do it, even though at the time, I didn't think that it was a job that I was ever going to get. Wow. And, you know, there's the politics side that goes with the ABC as well, which I'm sure must have been an interesting consideration for you. But if we fast forward, you know, it's no secret that about two, two and a half years in, you had a sort of a controversial and no doubt probably quite traumatic exit. What did you learn about resilience and what can you tell us about that time? Yeah, look, I must admit, I had got into the role with a five-year term in mind, and I was executing against that. And I think that the changes that I delivered, whether it was around investing more in regional journalism, whether it was reorganising the team so that they were essentially platform agnostic. One of the things I'm proudest of is that we went from reaching 2% of the population through third-party platforms like Facebook and, and YouTube to close to 20% in my time there. And that was really about making sure that the amazing content that the ABC had was in front of as many Australians as possible because that's the job. I absolutely loved my time there and I'm very proud of what I achieved and I'd do it again. (laughs) I think the one thing that worries me is any messages that it sends around, you know, not participating in public service, not supporting the ABC because, you know, again, I think that the work that the ABC does and, frankly, public service does is extraordinary and it should be valued and it should be something that we all you know aspire to because it's so important I just hope that my experience doesn't put people off particularly women off from from having that experience there's no doubt because you were such a pioneer there the first female CEO and clearly making the organisation sometimes probably feel uncomfortable as you transform because we all know change does not feel easy or comfortable. You know, if you had someone come to you who's just been through a setback themselves and felt like, you know, they were going to be sort of forever viewed as associated with, you know, whatever scenario they've just come through, what's your advice to people to sort of bounce back from setbacks? Yeah, look, I think it's really to take some time to really not jump into, you know, something immediately. I very much took time and really sort of, you know, reach out to people. I think, you know, don't don't hide away. I must admit the the most 
incredible support I got from people who were in the supermarket, in Bunnings, in you know, on a plane. I, I think at one point I had maybe half a dozen different people from all walks of life come up to me on, on one particular day. I mean, you know, people are incredibly supportive and I took a lot of heart from that. I really did. And, you know, if you step back, not just ABC, but for your whole career, do you think women are held to different leadership standards? Look, the one thing I worry about, particularly in Australia, is the lack of women in senior line management and CEO roles. It's not okay. I mean, 5 6% is not okay. And the pipeline is not there because the only way you're going to get a CEO role is if you have line management experience. And if you don't have line management experience, you're not, you know, in the nicest possible way, you're not moving from HR or marketing into the CEO role. You're just not, you, you need to have that PL experience. And what worries me is that means that the concept of what leadership looks like is a very male concept of leadership. And I think that there are different ways of leading and it doesn't have to be cookie cutter. I mean, I know what worked in Japan was very different to what worked in China and what worked in India and what works in Australia. And so I am concerned that if you don't have role models and people who exhibit different characteristics of leadership, whether they're male or female, then what's regarded as, as acceptable, it becomes a very narrow range. Yeah, we, we couldn't agree with you more. I know that you now, in your new sort of career as a board director, you're also doing quite a lot of mentoring of young women, aren't you? Um, particularly women of Asian backgrounds. What specific challenges do you think that they face? I think there are some some sort of generalisations around women as they sort of move through organisations. One is, you know, they feel like they need to do everything perfectly. So I'll give you an example of something that I talk to women about a lot, which is if you get presented with an opportunity, I found that, you know, this happened in my career, you know, when when I was trying to encourage women to move out of their comfort zone, the response that I would get from a lot of women would be, oh, I can't possibly do that. I'm not qualified. And my response is, don't ever say that. (laughs) Actually, say yes and then and then go home and say how the hell am I going to do this um and so so look I think some of it is around projecting that level of confidence and and I think that Asian women have that even worse because you know they're not again this is a this is a mass generalization but it I found that projecting confidence is not a very Asian trait. If someone compliments you, you say, oh, not at all. No, that's not me. You know, you're always trying to play things down. And that doesn't really work in most corporate environments, particularly in US multinationals, right? A lot of women, particularly women who have young children, have their their life organised within an inch of its life. I mean, I certainly did when I, I was at that stage. And you don't look at new opportunities because you think, oh, my gosh, I can can barely cope doing this, let alone, you know, having to do something else. 
again, you, you'll cope. It's fine. Um, I ended up being CEO at Star when my daughters were seven and one. And at the time, it was completely hellish. But they, they seem pretty well adjusted now. So, you know, the other message I give to women is that your career is long. So just because you have a few hellish years where you are working like crazy, that doesn't last forever. I mean, I went from managing 4,000 people at Star to managing about five people in a private equity firm. And so there are peaks and troughs and, and realise your career is long. And frankly, I wouldn't have had any of the jobs subsequent if I hadn't taken on the, the CEO job at Star. So it sounds like the way that you view it is that it's it's an investment and the risk that you're taking in that moment in time will pay back. When you are actually in those positions, let's take the ABC MD role, because I have to say, you know, I remember hearing that you got that job and going, that is absolutely amazing. But that feels like a big risk. You know, it's it's a big job. It's highly political. You get slammed in the press, whoever you are, but particularly as a woman. What were you thinking to yourself when you actually decided, yep, I'm going to go for this? You know, it was a bit of what's the worst that can happen. And it's worth it. It was one of those things where I was going to learn a lot. I was going to give it my best shot. But it also wasn't going to define me. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to do it forever. And I knew at the time that my skills could be very useful as the ABC went about the transformation of both its kind of content as well as its organisation. Fantastic. Well, you've now moved from an executive career into a non-executive board director career. And I think you're, you're on the boards of Starhub, which is a telco in Singapore, Catapult, a listed sports tech business, and Hopper, a marketplace for digital advertising on streaming TV. How have you found that move from executive to non-executive? Yeah, look, I found it actually really, really interesting. I think in, in all of those instances, it's it's about trying to both kind of take advantage of my skills and experience to be able to be helpful, but at the same time, learn a lot and find companies that are really doing something, either, you know, in Starhub's case, really transforming around a much more simplified product offering in Catapult's case, really um, supercharging the opportunity with with sports teams and and ultimately with consumers. And then with Hopper, trying to launch a technology for cable operators and and advertisers in a a way that hasn't been done before, bringing in addressable advertising. So, I mean, I think all of those have a commonality around, you know, kind of helping me stretch my brain. But, you know, I, I will say I, I haven't necessarily ruled out an executive career at some point. I still feel like I've got a whole lot of energy and passion and it's just a question of what that might look like. So watch this space. That sounds intriguing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, why why should any of us ever be forced to say never about, you know, different career paths? As you said, it, it evolves over time. Now, I'm really conscious of time, Michelle, and you've been so generous. So questions that we love to ask our guests uh, as we sort of wrap up our conversations would be, if you could go back in time, what one piece of advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Oh, yeah, don't plan too much. Don't overthink things. 
you know, when I was 30, I was very concerned about, well, you know, where am I going to be when I'm 40? <laughs> like what's what's the next job and the next job and the next job? And, you know, really sort of enjoy the moment, I guess, a bit more and really enjoy what you're doing. And I am, as ended up, I got incredible experience, but I got that from working really hard, loving what I was doing and being presented with opportunities that never remotely occurred to me. I mean, you know, at 30, did I ever think I would be running the ABC? Never. Um, did I ever think I'd be working at Google? Never. Yeah, it's. I think that's great because it's all too easy to put a lot of pressure on yourself, particularly I think at that age where you feel like it's sort of progress now or never. Life is long, careers are long. You know, you'll be presented with opportunities that never you never thought about. So, And also just say yes to things. Again, what's the worst that can happen? I, uh, I think that is the most perfect note to end our wonderful conversation on, Michelle. You know, I don't know if there's any way you'd like to share with listeners who might want to learn more about you or any of the businesses you're involved with, sort of LinkedIn or company websites. Come find me on LinkedIn. I must admit, I love connecting with people on LinkedIn and following up with conversations or uh, yes some form of you know sharing of you know issues or problems yeah find me on LinkedIn well we shall put that in our show notes and it's just left for me now to say it's been fascinating and wonderful having this conversation with you Michelle we're really grateful for your time and for sharing your amazing and yeah unpredictable wonderful story with us so thank you thanks so much I really enjoyed it thanks Michelle I really admire Michelle's resilience and mindset, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's very generous of her to speak about things a lot of people wouldn't. I've also been reflecting on how Michelle really thinks about taking risks. You know, even when arguably the worst thing that could happen did happen, she still says she'd do it again because of the impact she feels she had and the learning she gained. Yeah, it's such a great attitude and so remarkable, really. You know, it's worth mentioning here that we didn't go into lots of details of Michelle's departure from or her legal settlement with the ABC that followed, as she's bound by legal agreements not to talk about the details. Yeah, understandable. You know, I also really loved Michelle's openness you know, and not trying to overplan her career. I think particularly in this day and age, it really makes a lot of sense. You know, things change so quickly and move so fast. You can't actually plan that sensibly. So why not just be open to opportunities as they arise? I really agree with that. And it's worked for me, I'll have to say. So I agree. Yeah. Well, dear listeners, this is our last episode for the year. And so from both Claire and I, firstly, thank you so much for tuning in and being with us. We really, really appreciate it. And we absolutely love hearing from you as well. Now, if you felt like giving us a Christmas present, then please rate and review our show on your favorite podcasting platform. It really would make our day and our Christmas and our festive season. Absolutely. We'd really appreciate that. And finally, Greta and I want to wish you and your loved ones a wonderful, happy and healthy festive season if you're celebrating and a great transition into the new year and a rest. Now, we'll be taking one now, so we'll be back here in the third week of January. So that's this year done and dusted for us. 
sending love to you all. Please take care, recharge, and as Claire said, rest and ciao for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.